Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy, the host of Theana Money. Before we get started on this week's episode, I want to give you all some very practical economic advice. This is something I think I want to start trying to do from time to time. Maybe if I get enough ideas every single episode give just something really practical that's not really related to the topic at hand at the beginning. And this is just what I learned from my own personal experience. So you can try to uh, not do what I did. Uh, You know how for the last at least probably four or five years we've had these little chip readers on your credit card? Well, when you're using your credit card with that, be careful you don't accidentally lift up on it a little bit when you put it in or pull it out. Because if you do over time, you could slightly bend your credit card and then when you come to a place where the chip reader is broken and you have to swipe your card then you have to swipe your card like three times because your card's slightly bent and it doesn't want to it doesn't want to read it properly and it's really annoying and then you end up having to ever so gently try to bend your card back the other way so that you don't break it but get it to actually swipe properly on the first try. So don't do what I did. I think my credit card's fine now. I was able to bend it back a little bit and it's still slightly bent, I think, but like it works when I have to swipe instead of insert the card now. So just really be careful about when you're inserting your credit card into the chip reader that you don't accidentally bend it a little bit and then make it mess up when you have to swipe it instead of insert it somewhere. Anyway, so to the topic at hand, Last week, we talked about uh, abortion economics, uh, specifically in regards to the states that are offering up to 4K to pay for women to get their abortions. And we talked about the economic reasons that these companies are doing that and uh, how immoral it is and all the different issues with it. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, go back and jump to that. Uh, This week, we are doing what I said I was going to do last week and just talking about why abortion is wrong. So this week we're getting a little bit away from economics. I've talked about abortion as it relates to economics and politics before. And so since we as Christians always just assumed abortion was wrong and the podcast had never explained why it is, I'm going to do that on this week's episode. Um, Also next week I'm going to do one more episode relating to abortion and economics. Next week's going to be um, more on a smaller scale talking about abortion and economics in some sense on a smaller scale and in some sense on a bigger scale than last week's episode as well. So those two episodes relating to the more economic side of abortion are kind of sandwiching this one in the middle as to why just in general from scripture abortion is wrong. Uh, And now before we get started on that I want to ask y'all if you like this episode then Share it with your friends. If you know someone who claims that abortion is okay, send this episode to them. Let them hopefully listen to it and see why it's wrong. Be convicted that scripture argues 
abortion is wrong. And even if the person isn't a Christian, if they're an unbeliever, still send it to them because scripture can convict unbelievers as well as believers. If scripture couldn't convict unbelievers, then none of us would ever become Christians because the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives needs to make scripture convict us for us to initially become Christians. So share it with your friends, follow Theana Money on the social media platform, subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher, and turn on the auto download so you don't miss future episodes. And let's jump into it. So we're going to talk about, like I said, why abortion is wrong. First, we're going to look at some passages in scripture. Then we're going to look at some places in church history. Uh, apparently now some people are trying to claim that the whole thing that Christians are against abortion, whether you want to call that pro-life or abolitionist. I am on the abolitionist side. Just to use a broader term, I might more just refer to the entire movement, including both incrementalists and abolitionists as pro-life in this episode. So hopefully you don't get too mad at me and cancel me right now for saying that. But people are trying to apparently now claim that up until like 50 years ago, Christians weren't pro-life and it's the Republicans that got Christians to turn pro-life, not the influence of Christians that made the Republicans pretend they fight abortion. Notice I said pretend, that doesn't describe every Republican politician, but an unfortunate number of them. Um, but actually, we're going to see as we look at church history that no, being against abortion is nothing new in uh, Christian thought. It's actually something that we have historical record going back to around the time of the death of the last apostle, showing us that Christians have for going on 2,000 years now, always stood against abortion. But church history isn't our highest authority. Scripture is. And so we're going to first look at Scripture and where Scripture shows us that abortion is morally wrong before God. First, we're going to look at Exodus. The first two passages we'll look at will be in Exodus. So, hey, we're going to one of the five books of the law. This is a theonomic podcast. So still kind of in a way getting a bit of theonomy in there. First, let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Many of you are probably already familiar with Exodus 20. You, before I even start reading it, know Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. And so Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 says, You shall not murder. Just those simple four words, you shall not murder. I mean, as far as the conversation on abortion goes, I could probably just end the podcast right now. Like, there it is four simple words in that one verse, that murder is wrong. Since preborn children are just as much human as any born child or born adult is, then that just settles it right there, that murder is wrong. Now, this is not the only place of scripture that talks about this. We're going to look at some others as well, especially since people like to debate about when a child becomes living, which is really stupid at the point of conception. That child has his own separate DNA, neither the mother's nor the father's, but half of each, a wholly unique to him, unless in the case of uh, of identical twins, wholly unique to that individual set of DNA. Uh, you can't really make any argument. Uh, some liberals pretending that they're Christians say that life starts at the first breath because Adam became alive when God breathed breath into him, but Here's the thing. If uh, God takes some dust in the ground and forms you and you weren't conceived from parents, then you can make that argument about yourself. But last I checked, everyone since Adam and Eve have been uh, conceived and their mother was pregnant with them and all of these sorts of things. And so, therefore, you start living when you're conceived. 
not even when uh after you're conceived when you implant inside your mother as some people are trying to argue now they're trying to argue life begins at implantation not at conception which is where some forms of birth control that can make a baby that has been conceived but not implanted die is claiming that it's pro-life birth control when in fact it's not but we're getting on a bunch of rabbit trails there like four different rabbit trails in that one minute or two process so let's jump back to scripture let's look at the next passage i want to look at just the next page or two over exodus 21 we're looking specifically at verses 22 through 25 it reads and if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely yet there is no injury he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband will set for him and he shall pay as the judges decide but if there be any injury then you shall pay life for life eye for eye tooth for tooth hand for hand foot for foot burn for burn bruise for bruise wound for wound and so here we see in god's uh, case law here applying the law to various aspects of life for Israel as an example to us for our laws that if two men are fighting with each other and they harm a pregnant woman so that she gives birth to her child then what should be done here if the woman or the child either one is injured then the men must pay equal to the injury that the woman or the child suffered lex teliones if the woman or her baby or her baby there died and the injury caused by these men fighting then they must pay life for life if there is some less severe injury then they pay according to the less severe injury and also as it said as the woman's husband or as the judges decide he shall pay because of the injury done to her so basically if them fighting causes a pregnant woman later in her pregnancy maybe just a week before when the baby's due to give birth and because the baby's only a week premature the baby's fine there's no injury whatsoever then they just have to pay the fine given to them and if the woman is injured then they will be punished accordingly but the baby's fine the baby didn't die so there is no death penalty there but if the woman has a miscarriage because of the injury these men caused her to suffer then the men who caused that injury that resulted in the death of the baby the preborn baby must forfeit their lives so here we see God giving the same capital punishment for murder to preborn children that he elsewhere in scripture, even going as far back as Genesis 9, gives to murder of a born individual. God is giving, to recap, God is giving the same capital punishment for the murder of a preborn human that he is for the murder of a born human, putting the preborn, as far as life is concerned, and punishment for that life on equal footing with those who are born here in Exodus 22. And uh, if you're unaware, sometimes people will use this passage specifically as the RSV renders it to try to argue that the Bible says abortion is okay. And it's been a while since I've gone through that whole argument. It basically just has to do with the RSV really poorly translating a word or two in Hebrew into English that really just muddies the water. And a general rule of thumb is if your argument for something in scripture only works in one particular translation, it's probably wrong. Now, maybe you can argue from the original language that this one translation does a better job with it than any other, although we have so many solid English translations that 
probably is a really difficult argument to make. So just generally, if your argument only works in one translation, like here with the RSV, it's probably wrong. Or some atheists will try to make arguments that have to use the KJV, and it only works in the KJV because the KJV is using older language and older vernacular. And our new translations today translate into a more modern vernacular that make it easy to see that the atheist argument is wrong. They just have to rely on people misunderstanding the older vernacular of the KJV to make their argument and then, you know, things like that. If your argument only works in one particular version of the Bible, then it's probably wrong. And that's the case with people trying to use Exodus 21 to argue abortion is okay because Exodus 21 and any faithful version and any version that faithfully renders that passage will clearly show that abortion is wrong according to God. Next, I want to look at Psalm 51.5. Uh, Psalm 51 is one of my favorites in the entire Psalter. Psalm 51 and Psalm 2 are probably two of my favorites. So Psalm 51.5, it reads, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And now if you know the context of Psalm 51, David confessing his sin to God after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah and the prophet Nathan confronting David on it, then you know this is David's confession of sin. And David is not here saying, though the language does kind of seem a little bit confusing, David isn't here saying his mother did something sinful that resulted in his conception. David is saying that from the moment of conception, he is a sinner. Um, if you just look at the flow of the text, if David's in the middle of confessing his sin and then takes this weird one sentence long detour to confess his mother's sin as well and then goes back to confessing his own sin, that just doesn't make sense. David is confessing his own sin all throughout Psalm 51, especially in that first half. And so he's confessing that he has been a sinner from the moment of conception. And for David to be a sinner from the moment of conception, he has to have been human from the moment of conception because God doesn't hold a, you know, dogs guilty for their sin before him like he does humans. God doesn't hold clumps of cells as guilty for sin. Clumps of cells are not sinners. Humans are sinners. And so David is a human from the moment of conception, making passages like Exodus 20 and Exodus 21 applicable to preborn image bearers. A couple other passages. These are some of the more well-known ones, some of the more popular ones to apply to this discussion. Uh, we're going to turn to another Psalm of David, Psalm 139. Psalm 139 says in verses 13 through 16, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance, and in your book all of them were written, the days that you formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So David there is speaking of God forming him, God developing him when he was inside his mother, when his mother was still pregnant with David, when David was still a preborn human. He is speaking of God weaving him together and his uh, unformed substance and being knit together and things like that. 
And David doesn't say that God knit together some clump of cells that would turn into David several months later, but that God was knitting David together when David was in the womb. This quote-unquote clump of cells in the wife of Jesse was not just this lifeless clump of cells that through the magical birth canal, if you've seen that video by Laura Clausen, would become David, but rather that was David from the moment he was conceived. And lastly, another very popular verse for the subject, Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 reads, Before I formed you in the innermost parts, I knew you. And before you came out of the womb, I set you apart. I have given you as a prophet to the nations. And so uh, there God is talking about forming Jeremiah in his mother's womb and forming Jeremiah in the innermost parts. So that is a similar passage to Psalm 139. God is forming Jeremiah, not a clump of cells that would become Jeremiah in the womb. And uh, even before then had set Jeremiah apart as a prophet of the world and God's sovereignty and in his uh, foreordaining grace on image bearers. So those are just some uh, passages of scripture that I have given for why uh, Christians should be against abortion, why it is not an option for Christians to be quote-unquote pro-choice, why people such as Raphael Warnock, the quote-unquote pastor and politician who uh, is mere, nothing more than a wolf in wolf's clothing. He's not even a wolf in sheep's clothing to anyone who's read like three chapters of the Bible before and actually understood what they were reading. He's a wolf in wolf's clothing because he's not even trying to hide the fact that he is distorting scripture. Uh, so now after this, I want to move into church history. I said I would be discussing some aspects of church history to support the fight against abortion to support Christians being against abortion and pro-life or abolitionist. So first, I want to go back as far back in church history as we can go to something outside of the New Testament. So that would be the Didache. The Didache is a document that perhaps some of you are familiar with. It was written probably around the time of the death of the Apostle John. Many people think it was written in like the 90s, like the AD 090s, the end of the first century. Uh, other people think maybe a little bit earlier than that, other people a little bit later than that. So there's a little bit of a range, but probably somewhere around the 90s, give or take like 30 years, that the Didache was written. It is this early Christian document talking about uh, uh, different things for Christian practice. And by God's grace, it is something that we have up until today, that it has been recovered from archaeological research and by God's grace maybe we will have more early church documents such as this that become available to us in various archaeological findings. And so the Didache in one portion somewhat near the beginning of it, it says, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit pederasty, you shall not commit fornication, you shall not steal, you shall not practice magic, you shall not practice witchcraft, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is born. And so the Didache there is just very clearly prohibiting abortion or infanticide for the Christian. This early church document, like I said, was 
written shortly after the death of the last apostle, perhaps even shortly before he died, and it is just very clearly saying abortion is wrong. Also note its prohibition on abortion comes right after its prohibition on magic and witchcraft. And in case you were not aware of this, our chemical abortion today is not this new concept. It's not this new concept to take a pill or maybe more specifically drink a potion to try to kill your baby. Even in ancient Rome, they had these basically just witchcraft potions that they would take that had various poisons in them to make a mother lose her baby. And now maybe in the modern sense of how we think of magic and witchcraft, it doesn't fall into those categories. But in an older definition of the term, then it most certainly does. In an older sense of terms like magic, that would fall under the category of magic as people in the ancient world, in the times of the apostles, women to try to kill their baby would drink these various concoctions and potions to try to poison their baby and make them have an, a miscarriage by abortion. And so maybe I'm wrong in this, but I think whoever wrote the Didache was very intentional in listing abortion and why it is prohibited right after prohibiting magic and witchcraft because though magic and witchcraft had many other uses in the ancient Greco-Roman world than just making concoctions for abortifacient reasons, that was definitely one of them. And now we're going to go to a different point in church history. We're going to jump forward nearly 1,500 years to the time of the Reformation, and we're going to read a quote from John Calvin. Uh, if I remember correctly, this is actually a quote of his in his commentary on Exodus on one of the very passages I read just a bit ago there in Exodus chapter 21. And so Calvin says, maybe this is a quote you're familiar with. I think it's been dispersed quite a bit. John Calvin said, If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. And fetus, of course, especially if you listen to Jeff Durbin, just being the Latin word for baby. So what Calvin's saying there is that if it seems more evil to kill a man in his place of refuge, to kill a man in his home rather than out in the open in his field or uh, just maybe some random field along the way that's not owned by anyone, just grassland along a trail or out in some public place. If it seems more wrong to kill a man in his sanctuary, in his castle, in his home, in his refuge than to kill him in some random place out in the open, then it also should seem wrong to kill a child in the most safe and secure place a child should be, which is in his or her mother's womb, when that child has not even been born yet. If it seems wrong to us to kill someone at a place we should deem safe, then it should seem especially wrong for us to murder a child by abortion. To use a modern analogy for this, if it seems wrong to kill someone, to murder someone in a school, because schools should be places of learning and should be places of safety, or you could also say a hospital as well, then it should equally, if not more so, seem wrong to murder a child by abortion because as much as a school or a hospital should be a safe place where people don't have to worry about injury 
so much more should be a child still in his or her mother's womb. And so we see from all of this that abortion is clearly wrong and we as Christians should fight against that which is wrong. We should fight against injustice, not as critical theorists define injustice, but as scripture defines injustice. By the way, I plan to at some point have an episode on theonomy and critical theory and explain why theonomy and critical theory are antithetical to each other. So I don't know exactly when I'll drop that, maybe sooner, maybe later. If you want it to be sooner, then comment on a social media post or something and tell me that you want me to drop that episode soon and I'll try to uh, bump it up a little bit in the priority of the various episodes I have planned out in the near future. Uh, But a passage in scripture, one of the many passages in scripture that tells Christians to fight against injustice comes from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 24 verses 11 and 12. And yes, I did pick this specific passage that is probably the uh, two verses in Proverbs most commonly applied to fighting abortion. You may have even seen someone or been that person yourself standing outside an abortion mill holding a sign that has these verses written on it. Proverbs chapter 24 verses 11 and 12 say, Deliver those who are being taken away to death, and those who are stumbling to the slaughter, oh, hold them back. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts understand? And does not he who guards your soul know? And will not he render to man according to his work? So Christians are supposed to fight injustice. And if you know that evil is happening in your land and you just hide your eyes to it and pretend it's not happening, then God knows and God sees and he knows the thoughts of man's heart. So whatever type of injustice it is, Christians are to fight it. That doesn't mean that you have to join every single aspect of evil that's happening in our world. If everyone was trying to do everything at once, then little to nothing would be accomplished. We have different areas of focus. Uh, Some people, uh, such as myself, are more focused on the fight against abortion and don't spend as much time in fights in other areas as we do in this one. Uh, Other people are more involved with different fights, fights against various forms of abuse, uh, fights against homelessness, uh, the fight against biblical illiteracy by teaching scripture. I think can think of a great podcast like Gabe Hughes, uh, though I disagree with him on eschatology at the moment. You know, James White sure does like to visit Lindale a lot. Maybe he'll get all those guys to turn post mail. But like, you know, Gabe Hughes is a lot of teaching scripture. And so we have different areas of focus, but we should be seeking in whatever ways God allows us to to fight injustices. And currently in America, abortion is the biggest injustice in our nation. And so I just want to close by giving William Wilberforce as an example for us. William Wilberforce was perhaps the greatest individual, most influential individual in history of uh, the United Kingdom and England going all the way back for fighting injustice. I've heard it said that people said of William Wilberforce, he made uh, doing good fashionable that uh, he didn't just end the slave trade in the United Kingdom, but he also did a lot of other things, fighting prostitution, fighting all different sorts of areas of immoral things, or maybe not immoral things, just things where people needed help for various things. And so 
just look to people like William Wilberforce, you know, maybe do some Google searches on him and reading a little bit about him, uh, maybe pick up the movie Amazing Grace and watch it. It's a documentary, a dramatized documentary, uh, historical dramatized documentary, whatever those are called about William Wilberforce ending the slave trade. Uh, so yes, this is this week's episode, getting a little bit away from economics to just talk about abortion and why it's wrong. Next week, we're going to be returning to the topic of abortion, uh, talking about how some people use abortion to try to smuggle in uh, socialism and how that is wrong. And then after that, going back to just different topics we'll be talking about. Uh, I haven't forgotten about the topic related to Narnia, specifically the magician's nephew that I mentioned a couple months ago. That's just gotten pushed back a little bit as other things were a little bit higher on my priority. So hopefully here soon that episode's going to be dropping. I'm sure I've got some Narnia fans that are looking forward to how I will tie the magician's nephew in to the U.S. right now. And so that was this week's episode of Theana Money. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Satisfies me Your law is sweet